Welcome back to another episode of the Fab Lab Podcast, ladies and gentlemen, fellow fabricators, stone shop owners from across the Fruited Plain and beyond. I'm your host, Aaron Crowley. So glad to be tuning in with you for another episode of the Fab Lab Podcast, where we talk about the business side of stone fabricating. And in this episode, I had the distinct honor and privilege of talking to my old friend, Larry Hood, longtime editor of the Slippery Rock Gazette. Now, if you have been in the stone industry longer than two months, whether you've been sweeping floors, whether you've been running machinery, whether you've owned the shop, whether you're a fabricator, machine operator, installer, manager, doesn't matter. You've most likely sat at a lunch table, been in a break room, perhaps been in the bathroom, or maybe just seen a copy, an issue, run across your desk, an issue of the Slippery Rock Gazette. It is the longest standing trade publication for the stone industry in existence. Now, Larry is the editor of the Slippery Rock Gazette, is at a very unique vantage point. 25 years at a trade publication, a printed trade publication that has never missed an issue in 25 years. And that's saying something. When you look back over the last, say, 15 years of the stone industry, there's a couple of trade publications that don't exist any longer. There's another one that used to be printed, but now has mostly gone digital. The Slippery Rock Gazette is still there. You're going to hear Larry's interest, his desire, really his heart and sincere, genuine regard and empathy for the industry, and not just the industry, but for the owners, for the fabricators, for the installers. He genuinely cares about the industry. And it comes through in every episode, not every episode, in every issue and every copy of the Slippery Rock Gazette. And so I just found this to be such a fascinating and interesting conversation to go way, 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 way back to the beginning of this trade publication, where it started, how it started, and how it has navigated and stayed relevant over the last 25 years. It's so cool. Ladies and gentlemen, fellow fabricators, I know you're going to enjoy this episode, I know you're going to enjoy this conversation that I got to have with Larry Hood. Enjoy. Larry, welcome to the Fab Lab podcast. Thank you, Aaron. Thank you very much for inviting me. What a, what a treat and what a pleasure to be able to have this conversation after, uh, after our history that goes back a number of years and now to be able to, to have this conversation for the rest of the industry to hear. I, am, I have really been looking forward to, to this podcast. So thank you for coming on. Thank you. Thank you again for having me. I'll uh, try to tell you everything I know. <laughs> well, I'll do my well, best. But, you know, I've, I've had some questions just as familiar as I am with, you know, the slippery rock and, and kind of the history going back with Braxton Bragg, now BBI and, and all the time we spent together, you know, me turning in articles late and frustrating you to no end. Um, I, I've I've still had just questions. I've uh, I've always been intrigued by the story and the history of this of this publication, and especially in particular that it's it's remained. It it is sustained. It is it is still here. It is the primary publication for the stone industry, and so. Yeah. So can you can you take me back in terms of where your first interaction with the Slippery Rock Gazette was, and kind of what was the landscape back then? And, and, and how did you begin your, your time with the, the slippery rock? Sure. Yeah. And as you said, uh, you actually wrote for the slipper rock, wrote a weekly monthly column, uh, for, for many years. Yeah. And I, I still have most of that text saved somewhere. <laughs> you know, issues. Uh, my relationship with the slipper rock goes back to, uh, 97, 98, when uh, I was first doing ads for Braxton Bragg for Doug Slocum in the Slippery Rock. And that's initially how I got involved with it. <clears throat> of course, Slippery Rock was Doug Slocum's brainchild, his love child. <laughs> and he, he wrote for it for many years. He would do an editorial mm. in uh, every issue that he could. Um, he soon became, I think, a little bit too busy to do that. And by the time I, I formally came on board uh, working as designer and, and copy editing in 2000, in fact, it's just March 17, 2000 was my first actual day in the office. Huh. Uh, and I, for that, 
<clears throat> I started up kind of a marketing department for Doug. I brought in all my computers. Huh. So I was able to do, you know, digitally in-house the Slippery Rock for him. Okay. That was 21 years ago last week. Wow. Wow. Well, so for those who don't know who Doug Slocum is, maybe just give a quick background on, on what role he played, who he was, and, and uh, the connection between Braxton Bragg and the Slippery Rock. Yeah. Well, Doug Slocum and Ron Weiler founded in 94 Braxton Bragg as a tool supply company. Hmm. Uh, he originally worked in marketing for Vic Green. If those of you who remember Oh, no way. Uh, yes. I did not know that. Yeah. So he worked for Vic for a couple of years, and he had approached him with this idea of doing a uh, national newspaper for the stone industry. Huh. And as Doug tells it, unfortunately, he really wasn't that interested in it. I think that they did do um, a couple of publications of... Um, and I may still have one around somewhere, um, uh, uh, the green paper. Hmm. Um, so that probably occurred right around the same time, 94 maybe, hmm. just before Doug started to, left to start Braxton Bragg. Okay. Then how soon after that did he start? I mean, if that maybe was his original idea was to have a trade publication. And so we started a tooling business to support the trade publication or was it the other way around? Oh, it was kind of the other way around. It was his idea and uh, he was going to support it through you know, advertising revenue and then have uh, news about the industry, fun things about the industry and make it for the fabricators mm -hmm. uh, and shop owners as well, because they were ones that you'd be mailing it to but uh, it really was geared towards intellectually and the articles and everything for the guys in the shop hmm. and really and truly that's kind of the way the focus has remained here for the, the last couple of decades mm -hmm. uh, we try to make it accessible to everybody but mostly um for the guys in the shop and for people to make the business more profitable but also you know to give the guys in the shop something to read on break. Um, I didn't want to get away from the history, but what I've gotten for the last, you know, 20 years or so is that that's where it would be found. Uh, they joke it's either in the bathroom or in the break room. <laughs> so <laughs> I don't mind that. I don't mind that. They give them the opportunity to read when they're on break. Um, so there is widespread appeal to, throughout the shop. It's never been geared just for the owner. Yeah. The that you know that's really interesting to hear that and i think in terms like the modern day marketing they you know they a lot of talk about content creation and and creating value in a lot of ways he was he he, he was a trendsetter in that regard i mean he was had a business he had a relationship with these customers selling tooling but then to provide something of value at the same time, when maybe other people were just content to sell diamonds to them, and uh, you know, to to produce something that has obviously become something in and of itself now is a, probably a standalone entity. So maybe talk about that, how it was set up structurally. You know, you've got Braxton Bragg, this tooling company, and then you've got this, you know, shop guy trade publication. Um, kind of just, just just describe the evolution of that and how maybe it started in house did it did it at some point become more clearly defined as its own standalone you know sort of goals and, and business and and whatnot department maybe well that's an interesting question um i think uh doug's idea when he first published it was to have it have its own identity uh, as separate, maybe part of it separate from Braxton Bragg and you know, now from BBI. Um, and it, it always has. We have tried to keep it separate because we want to keep that legitimacy. This isn't just an, uh, a company newsletter hmm. put out by, by Braxton Bragg or put out by BB Industries. Um, And have tried very hard over the, the years, the last 
two decades that I've worked with, but to have it keep its own identity. Hmm. There have been times when uh, <clears throat> we struggle with that, but by and large, um, and now BB Industries helps support us. They've always helped support us in that the, they have the connections too with the manufacturers and uh, we try to support that and the advertisers and the inventors like you, Aaron, in the industry, we try to speak about what they have done and the good things that they have brought to the industry. And sometimes that relationship started with Braxton Bragg, like mm. your relationship with Braxton Bragg. Yeah. yeah. And um, it's from those connections that we were able to form um, a lot of the connections to our writers, to our contributors, because they're a big part of the industry. Some of them um, been a big part of the industry for many years, like Mike Bonstone, he's written for us mm -hmm. uh, about um, studies about glue, the best types of glue, just to get into something that's really prosaic, but mm -hmm. most guys have to work with every day. Um, Guys, can I, can I tell you a quick story that, that I just, remembered and it's this goes back to probably i could i can remember where i was at it was a sunday morning i brought in to your point about shop guys <laughs> you know in this case it wasn't in the bathroom i brought it home and it was a sunday morning i flipped open i cannot remember the guy's name but i can still see the face he had been the i think like the previous year's president of the mia i believe and, and you may re recall his name but he wrote an article and it had, and it had to do um, in, in the, the, the title, it had the, the phrase butterballs. And he, and he gave this talk on commercial applications of cladding and vertical, like in a, in a, I remember he used the example of an elevator where a panel had come loose and fallen on somebody in the hotel. And I'll never forget. Cause I had, I had been trained at a company, I'd worked at a company where they never did mechanical anchors on vertical applications. And so here I was like two years in business for myself. I'm sitting before church waiting for my wife. I flip open and I'm reading this article about butterballs. What's that? And he basically outlines the danger of a technique that I had been taught to do that I had then done. I had just installed this fireplace. 3CM granite on this, this, and I'd probably used the wrong adhesive. I hadn't used mechanical anchors. And I remember I was literally sitting in church sweating. I could not concentrate. I was so worried about that stone installation I had just completed. And it was done according to this guy's article. It was, it was done wrong. And um, I ended up going back to those people and I, I pulled their mantle off and I, I cut these grooves. I epoxied wire tie anchors back and lagged that into the cinder block. Um, what, what, a, what a role that that, uh, that that publication has played. So I don't know, that just, that just hit me. And that was significant. I've still got pictures of that fireplace and those anchors that, uh, do, would you have recalled who that might've been, who would have written that article? It had to have been like two, like 99, 2000, no later than 2001. There was a gentleman from Knoxville that was president of the MIA about that time. He retired soon after that, but I know that he was a, uh, a big force in the industry. Okay. And if I don't press it, I'll probably recall his name. Okay. I won't ask. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. I took you off, off, off uh, track there. So uh, you were you were just talking about the contributors and and just sort of the the relationship and the standalone nature that the the publication had. So I'm sorry, sorry for that distraction. It's no problem. Now, um, the slippery rock for many years. You know, we take just about all the advertising support that we can get. Um, but there've been times when that was really a little bit more selective. We really are very careful about who we let in. Mm -hmm. And it certainly would not have been uh, rival companies to Braxton Bragg. <laughs> that, I, I, that's all I will say on that matter. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was found upon. <laughs> well, that... But, 
that would seem understandable. You know, you're trying to strike this balance and walk this line, but you got to draw a line at some point. At uh, wow. So, at what what point did Doug sell Braxton Bragg? It was just before the industry downturn, so six or seven. Okay. I believe. Um, <clears throat> I can look back here on my bookshelf and probably find the, a more precise date, but that was about the time that he, he got out. Okay. So he'd, he'd had it for 10 years, no, 10, 12 years. Okay. How, how did that affect the Slippery Rock? What did that transition look like? Well, I will be honest with you, our first new uh, publisher that we had that, that came on board um, I was a little bit anxious for the how it was going to survive. Mm. Um, I guess from that point on, and since then we've had uh, two or three different CEOs, which means that they were basically the publisher. They had a, a large say on what we would do or what they wanted to see. And um, <clears throat> thankfully, though, I've been pretty pretty much allowed to run. Mm. in as uh, an ethical and um, journalistically in, with integrity mm -hmm. as I possibly could. Yeah. And for that much, I'm very, very thankful for that we do have that kind of separate existence, mm. um, even though we are pretty much hand in hand. Yeah. So in a tradition, like in a, in a normal, not normal, that, that, but in a, in a, like a standalone trade publication, for example, who, who would normally be considered like the publisher? Would that, were you referred to like the previous CEOs or the, really the, the publisher, they fill that role? Um, that yeah, what would that look like in another publication that didn't have a business, you know, behind it or a, a part of it? Um, you would be a functionary of the parent company either assigned as like a CEO okay. over that particular, and he might have um, a couple of different publications like um, BNP publishing. If you're not aware, they have a lot. No, it's not just you know, stone world that they publish, but the lots, lots, not even associated with the stone industry, really. Okay. They have a whole family of different magazines. Okay. So, so in that sense, the publisher is not the, yeah, I'm just trying to imagine in my mind, the hierarchy of the, the, the organizational structure, if you will, the publisher is not the printer of the, the physical, you know, magazine, the publisher is the, the leader, the CEO who, who oversees the. Sometimes they can really uh, go a long way with setting the tone of the publication. Mm -hmm. If it's not already long established. Okay. Uh, especially if it's a new, they may, um, change what their mission statement is or how it's run maybe who works for it okay interesting but you as the and that's that's kind of the interesting thing you know whereas as the uh you know the editor you know of a uh a trade publication you know may not necessarily run the business of the publication is that is that a, a fair statement or are you in charge of the staff and, and you're in charge of the content or what does that, what does your role look like as the editor relative to the, the publisher who, you know, kind of oversees the, the entity? Anything I have a question about, I'll run past the publisher. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I'm generally uh, in charge of developing the content. I have been for quite a few years now. Um, the writers, I did a count the other day. Uh, I have 15 or 16 different people that write for me. Wow. They're not all in every issue. Um, not counting you. <laughs> I would still like to get you back. I know your time is very valuable and you're, you're off doing some other things now, but um, even an occasional article. Hmm. Uh, so I have 15 or 16 different people associated with the industry uh, or that write for the industry that um, out of there, I might have 10 different people included in, in each issue. That's kind of a rough number looking at back at my last couple of uh, editions. 
Okay. So that's a lot to wrangle. Hmm. Um, I cannot imagine wrangling 10 of me every month, what that has got to be like. <laughs> you have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, I have to say that they're, they're really um, jewels and they have helped to make Slippery Rock <clears throat> what it is. And, and that includes people like Fred Houston, mm -hmm. um, Ed Hill, Ed Young, um, a couple of folks that write for uh, uh, naturalstone.org, uh, Karen Kirk, published a lot of her work over the last couple of years. Um, she's a geologist, and that's added an interesting perspective to what our, our, the learning aspect. A lot of guys that get into this are more mechanics than geologists, mm -hmm. even the people that have the quarries are not so much geologists you know as some um, as mechanics yeah manufacturers engineers um so i have people from all um aspects of the industry one of my principal writers i'll mention him by name peter marcucci mm -hmm. started writing for me um i want to say a little over 12 years ago but i think it's longer than that okay and uh, a lot of people that have come up that I gave them a chance writing. just like I gave you a chance writing. Yeah. <laughs> I think I was pretty gentle editor <clears throat> as far as that goes. Um, uh, Peter has a background in the industry. He was a fabricator and a CNC operator and a sawyer um, before, like a lot of people that got to be physically, I think a little too much for him mm -hmm. on something that was counter to the body. And you also, you just wanted to write. So mm -hmm. over the years, if I look back at my, my uh, author file, probably I've had a couple of dozen people that have, have come and gone as writers. And I'm, I'm always looking for contributors. So I'll just put that out there. Yeah. Well, <laughs> and, contributors. and that that's a great point to just pause for a moment and just reiterate that, you know, the former CNC operator, stone cutter, turned writer, you know, that is uh, what a what an awesome opportunity for somebody to make that transition. And what an awesome resource that you are to be able to give people that opportunity. I mean, that's uh, as having written some articles, it's and having never gone to school, you never had I won't say I didn't have the opportunity. I, I just don't think that's what I was cut out for per se. But for me personally, to be able to say that I had an article published was a huge deal. I mean, a huge deal to me just personally in terms of my own, you know, sort of evaluating my own career choices. And, and you know, there aren't a whole lot of feathers to stick in the cap, but that was a big one. And so I, you know, I'm very grateful that you gave me that opportunity. It sounds like you'd give other people that opportunity too. I do. And um, I have um, a few folks <clears throat> um, may write only for a year or two, something like that. It really is a punishing, I would say a brutal schedule, but uh, it's, it, I would say to somebody, if they wanted to get into it, uh, like I have some fairly recent writers, contributors, is that we'll look at doing every other month. Hmm. It's something that is a little bit more approachable than having a deadline every two or three weeks. Mm -hmm. And that's essentially what we've done. Um, or what I have done for the past couple of decades, we have a deadline every three weeks, hmm. basically. It just it doesn't stop. Yeah. <laughs> and the slippery rock has never stopped. We kept rolling <laughs> forward all these years, really. And um, unstoppable, I would like to say, but no, yeah. we have not missed an issue in all the years that I've been here. Wow. Been wow. Been you know, that's got to be hugely significant considering the, the downturn. And, you know, we saw Stone Business Magazine. You know, I don't know what the circumstances were, but they at some point stopped publishing the magazine Stone Industry News. 
Francis Heck, you know, at some point that that ceased to exist. And, and even to a certain degree, I, I don't know the status of Stone World uh, magazine, but the Slippery Rock is now this <laughs> mainstay that has prevailed. I mean, congratulations. What a, what a huge yeah. accomplishment. I would say that um, Stone Business or um, Stone Industry News, those, those folks, but especially Emerson, uh, still has a great online connection. And we, we've got a, a professional connection as well. Great. So uh, we try to support each other in what we do and yeah. get news out there. Yeah, that's right. I, I, was, I was thinking of his business partner, um, Gosh, I think Anderson, his last name was Anderson, maybe, but that's right. Emerson was, they were in that together at, uh, wow. So I've, I've got, I've got a question there seemed to me at one point, and I don't necessarily know the era, but that there was a, I perceived a shift that like there was a transition towards more technical articles where there was always humor in it. But there was a there was a season where I I've always imagined like it seems like some decision was made to shift you know maybe sort of away from some of the the jokes and the 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 tongue in cheek writing that was always you know enjoyable where it kind of gave way to more of the um, the business and the technical side of the industry and 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 more I don't want to say professional but just it, it was is that was that a a fair representation or, or did, did that a shift occur? Or was that just in my own mind? No, I think I know what you're talking about. <clears throat> and when I first started, um, our editor was Francis Heck. You, you mentioned him. Yeah. He published Stone Industry News for a while after he left here. And I only worked with him for a couple of years here. And after that, he was gone. And then that was, it was me and a uh, lady named Stacy Wingo who came in as a, a marketing coordinator for Braxton Bragg. And we ran it, basically. Mm. We ran it. And essentially, uh, after quite a while, I'd say a little less than 10 years, Stacy went on to do other things. And it all fell in my lap. Mm. But I would say the year after Francis left, which would have been. 2002, um, I started looking for things that had a little more relevance, I think, and actually going out and um, soliciting articles. Unfortunately, that's something that um, my predecessor didn't do. He took what fell into his lap, basically, and ran with it. Okay. And... Um, so we tried to make it a little more professional. Um, that was what I was trying to do at the time, too, for Braxton Bragg. I was their art director and tried to give them um, a professional face to the industry. Mm. And uh, so that's probably about that time you may have noticed that. And that's very perceptive, I would say. <laughs> <laughs> we still try to continue on with the stories and the jokes. And yeah. For, um, a very long time, Boomer Winfrey wrote the Varmint County Chronicles for us. Yeah, that, that was always fun. I mean, there's, man, I could talk about that for hours, really. <laughs> there's some, there's some backstory to that, <laughs> <laughs> to some local politics. Um, anyway, I kind of digress. Uh, there was a point, I think, that we uh, actively began to uh, look for supporting writers to um, bring a couple of regulars on board that were uh, not just writing jokes and funny things. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, we still had a lot of people on our masthead like Rufus Leakin. <laughs> Rufus is still with us, I'm afraid. <laughs> I retired. <laughs> oh. Uh, well, what was, you know, when you see the couple of things that have, you know, have occurred over the last probably maybe 10 years, coming out of the Great Recession, where numerous publications did not make it through, and then the just a massive shift towards digital. 
you know, talk, just talk about kind of how you have remained relevant and, and how you've, you've repositioned and continued to, you know, advance the slippery rock as a, you know, as a printed trade publication. What does that, you know, what does that look like? Well, right now, um, we have a, a pretty active digital online and print presence. Um, the thing about Slipper Rock remaining in print, and this was a conscious decision that we really had to make uh, back um, when we were in discussions with uh, the people at Stone World and what they were trying to do. And you know, at that time, you know, BB Industries has always been a big advertising supporter for them as well. Mm. And their decision to go digital, um, I'm sure, was a very hard but financial decision for them. Uh, it, it's not easy to do a print publication, but our commitment to doing it really is for the fabricator. Hmm. Um, this is a medium that gets into uh, the shop and can be shared around the shop. You don't have to have some kind of digital subscription to get into it, or you really can't <clears throat> access the web uh, quite that in that same way when you're working in a shop. You may be able to get it on your phone, but that's not really that's not a really um, good digestible way to get your information. Right. Uh, or especially uh, the different types of learning that we present and the, uh, the tools that they can use to um, find about advances in safety, things that they can be doing. Um, that's just not as accessible in digital as it is in print. Yeah. And especially uh, you have a couple of copies and many shops, um, I don't really have an idea of how many, but many shops get a couple of copies of it. One stays with the, uh, the owner of the company who stays in the office and the other goes to the guys in the shop, goes to the break room or the production manager or something like that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That was very, th that was always true of our, of our shop. You know, you had one on the break table, you oftentimes did have one in the bathroom and uh you know one of those probably floated around the office too i mean it uh uh it, yeah absolutely irreplaceable you cannot it, it's just unimaginable to say you would somehow get the same value if you were reading it on your phone i just i just can't imagine that happening but about 10 years ago or actually longer than that um we started publishing the same monthly look of the publication online as we did in print and, and now uh in fact i've got a flipbook version and i have uh, the pdf version which is essentially the pdf version of the print okay um, and the web version which may include a couple more articles or things that were late breaking that really didn't make it in because really we are you know four to six weeks ahead in order to have it published and mailed and come out and be in people's uh, mailboxes on the desktops first of the month. Mm -hmm. That's something that we've always had a really strong commitment to do. And it, it makes my life kind of crazy, to be honest with you. <laughs> because now I'm working on May issue right now. So, <laughs> and, 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 so you're working, that was always the, the, the struggle was trying to, you know, you're, you've got the deadline, but then you've got the, and then you got the mailing and then you're, you're always looking, you know, you're thinking maybe a month, two months, how, how what does that look like from your planning perspective? You know, you've got the one that just hit, you've got the one that just you sent to publishing or the printer, and then you're working on the next one. How, how far out are you? I don't know, storyboarding or, or game planning there's so much to every issue i mean there's just so much content in there to to keep that straight what is that yeah how, how do you forecast that and, and manage that i would try to plan out somewhat the whole year hmm. um, it doesn't always work because the things that we would like to do um or the shops that we would like to to, to profile and interview it doesn't always happen like every issue I have, I'd like an A, B, and C 
man, the things don't work out. <laughs> and it's hard to do a uh, a media plan, you know, twelve months out when that's basically <clears throat> your existence. You know, there are things that we do plan way far in advance. We have something going on very interesting to come out in May uh, that we've been working on for a while on. Um, water filtration in shops and talking to some of the manufacturers and the different shops and did the different machines that they use, mm. getting some um, some case studies and getting some uh, feedback from the <clears throat> the guys that actually use them. May have used a couple of different models while yeah. their shops have been open. So that takes some long range planning. Yeah. Well, and those kind of, you know, when you're talking about just you know, the evolution of the industry at large and being able to provide that. I mean, who else is going to do that kind of a study is going to take the time uh, to, to research and to interview and to assemble, put it in a, in a, in a digestible, you know, article or two or three and, and then make it available to everybody. You know, I mean, the, the significance of that is probably lost on most of us who are just out there cutting away, grinding, you know, and, and, and don't really see what all goes on to, to make that happen. And, and as we were talking about. Um, I'd like to point out to your audience and I hope everybody gets this and remembers it for 25, <clears throat> excuse me, for 25 years or more, Slippery Rock has been free to the industry. Mm. You can, uh, contact us online. It works better than calling me to get a subscription. <laughs> it is absolutely free. Mm. It's because we're underwritten by our advertisers and they're truly the people in the industry that help support us. Mm. And um, so if any manufacturers out there listening that are already advertising with us, come please support us. Uh, the, the one big thing that um, one other big thing that Doug Slocum said to me that is about the classifieds and our classifieds have been free or, or mostly free for as long as I've been associated with it. That was a big um, feature that he wanted to extend to the industry. The mm. guys that needed to get rid of used machinery, the guys that were looking for work, mm. uh, the guys that were out of work even. We've had quite a few of those over the year. But mostly, and especially after 2009, all the used machinery that was on the market, free ads to mm. post the machines, free ads to sell their businesses. Um, and we're still doing that. Um, I'm happy to say that, yeah, we do have some paid classifieds. And these are basically box ads and people had other services and things. Mm. But our, our print classifieds and our online web advertisers uh, advertisements are free wow yeah that's i'm glad you made that point because that too it was definitely lost on me you know the uh, you just assume it's been showing up at the shop first week of every month for you know 20 plus years you just you don't even think about how you know who originally signed up and made the you paid the subscription oh nobody it's it's free uh, uh that's a good point yeah, it's a service to the industry, and that was <clears throat> part of uh, Dick Slocum's master plan. Mm. Uh, it really was funded for decades wow. you know, by uh, our advertisers, and as it began to pick up speed, we had the advertisers from most of the big industry uh, machine manufacturers and overseas also, all Italian manufacturers who wanted to get into the American market. Mm -hmm. um, I think you will see some of the first appearance of uh, Italian fabrication machines because they were advertised in the Slipper Rock originally. No kidding. People took notice. Uh, they they reached the market. They came to some of the shows here. They got their feet in the door. Hmm. And um, like Sasso, there are a lot of people that prefer those machines. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, that's right. <laughs> uh, yeah, we put a Sasso in. At, um, actually right before we got the offer on our business. And um, yeah, it was great. First, that was the first Italian machine I'd ever bought. I'd always bought either Northwater Park up to that point was kind of a, I was kind of a, um, 
<laughs> that was my inclination. But yeah, we were very, you know, very happy with that. So I'm curious, that's an interesting point of manufacturers from outside the US accessing the market in terms of it going the other way, how far does the slippery rock, you know, and, and how, how far does it reach in terms of, you know, Europe or um, Australia, I don't know, maybe even in the, you know, the East, what, what, what? Oh, there's a story there. There's a story there too. I'll try to ma make a long one. No, no, but tell it. Basically our circulation is North America. Okay. And um, in that, I include Hawaii, you know, the contiguous States, uh, up into Canada, some um, have a fellow approached me at the last um, <clears throat> Stone Expo I was and said that he was upset with me because he had stopped getting his slipper rock. <laughs> and he was from, um, I want to say Quebec. Okay. Um, and at that same show, somebody came in from British Columbia and said, what happened to my subscription? And I had to tell them, um, we stopped mailing to Canada because it was so expensive. <laughs> <laughs> There's some still that I will send out, you know, as a, a first class, you know, special envelope, but basically U.S. and um, there are places too where uh, BB Industries has customers outside uh, territories like Puerto Rico and uh, Bermuda, places like that. There's a few that have gone to Australia. And uh, for a time, I had a great correspondence with one of the um, British stone industry publications. Huh. And kind of swapped um, publications that way, but no real uh, subscription base there okay. in the UK, though uh, they have a very interesting stone industry. How, how so? Well, it goes back centuries. Hmm. I mean, they have heritage sites to where they're only allowed to take, you know, just for um, a few square meters at, a, at, a, at a, a year, something that they may need to replace a stone, you know, on Westminster Cathedral or someplace oh, that, that it's got historical value, great historical value, but they're still there and they know where the stone came from. Wow. Um, that is fascinating. So you're talking about the quarry, basically. That is so interesting. Yeah, the same sort of the same things happens here. Huh. Um, not too often long ago. Well, I say that it's probably within the past 10 years. Um, um, we had a quarry reopened up here close to us uh, in, in Knoxville, the okay. old Knox Gray Quarry, hmm. which was a Tennessee marble. Okay, and uh, that opened back up, and I know that uh, did an article at the time with Monica Gowett talking about uh, getting back in there and getting some stone that was needed for um, something that fallen off that needed to be rebuilt. <laughs> so a, rest a restoration or yeah. a replacement yeah. type thing. Wow. Yeah, and there are uh, all the Vermont quarries are like that too. So we have a bit of that history here, but. Nothing like you know the quarries that you might find in in Europe or France and yeah. England. Wow, oh, that's fascinating. Hmm. But to get back to your question, um, one of the reasons ways that we try to stay relevant today is that we do offer these digital versions. We realize that people are pressed for time. Uh, they may not have the time to sit down to read or the benefit that we give from our digital versions that we supply links which go to the sources in the articles yeah or um, go from there to um, other resources <clears throat> especially in our training articles I like to do that mm -hmm. that's one thing different that I can do digitally than I can in print so we like to do talk about the whole package and in fact, when we're talking to advertisers and supporters of the Slipper Rock, <clears throat> one thing that we're doing now, different than we have in the last couple of years, is we have um, a package deal that we offer that can advertise on all three or any of the three mediums that we, we offer. Hmm. And, uh, I hope that makes more attractive to manufacturers. And I think it has. Oh, for sure. 
Yeah. What, what are you seeing? You know, you, you can't really measure whether people or how many people are picking up that magazine and flipping through it, you know, at the lunch table, but you can measure clicks and, and time spent on web pages. Are you seeing more and more people move towards the digital option that you're providing? Well, I don't know, but I tell you what, during um, everybody was shut down during the pan pandemic, um, 19, 20, 21, we saw a huge spike. Huh. I don't know if people had more leisure time or what was going on, but a huge spike in um, website use. Hmm. That told us that we were kind of going in the right direction and yeah. we're going to keep both. We're going to keep print and web and um, hopefully sometime in the future here, you know, we'll make it even better than it is now. Mm -hmm. Not sure what that will look like, but yeah. <laughs> we're going to try. I'm going to try. <clears throat> and I'd like to say thank you to all of our faithful print readers because they've supported us all these years. And um, especially the guys that occasionally even write to, to thank us. That happens. Yeah. I get a couple of uh, letters every month. I know you got some letters uh, of people that were not too pleased with some of the articles that I wrote, uh, I think back in 2012. <laughs> I don't know if you remember that or not. Oh, well, yeah, but I wasn't going to mention it. So much. <laughs> <laughs> I, I remember, I don't know, this is just funny. I was thinking about this before we, just this morning, I was thinking about our conversation that we were going to have today. And I recalled the phone call that I got from the publisher and uh, taking issue with a couple of articles that I read. And, and that was the closest thing to being sent back to the principal's office that I had experienced since being in school. Well, I'll tell you, there was a silver lining there because it made us re-examine some of our editorial policies. <laughs> Excuse me, made me re-examine some of our editorial policies. So, yeah, we leave the politics um, to somebody else. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was a point well taken. And, uh, yeah, I, that's how I was introduced to Rich Hassert was uh, there was some, uh, yeah, there was some feedback on a couple of articles that I had wrote that wasn't too, uh, uh, wasn't much appreciated. But, wow, what a... What, man, I, Larry, what, uh, I, I just want to say thank you. What I, I'm just, it's just hitting me right now, thinking about that opportunity and that experience that you gave me, you know, to, to have that, that opportunity to write number one, but just to be associated and to see another side of the industry that it was, you know, it was just completely unfamiliar with. And, and another thought that occurs to me as, as we're talking about this, that opportunity to write for the Slippery Rock, I really honestly believe set a, a template for me because of the consistency and the, even though I missed some articles here and there, but I, I went back, I think I wrote somewhere in the neighborhood of 40 or 50 articles for the Slippery Rock. And, and yeah. And I can see it's interesting with the podcast because I think I I did need a break. My my, I just gotten to the point where I had to I had to. I just needed some space to think, and kind of recoup. But I see that what the podcast format that I think I have sort of fallen into, I think actually is a direct reflection of the pattern that I developed writing their, their in structure in terms of thinking through, you know, the prepare, you know, the preparation, what's the topic, what's the, there, there's definitely similarities. And, and I, I am sure that the podcast would not be anywhere near what it is had I not had that opportunity to write for the slippery rock. And so I just, it just hit me as we're talking about this, thinking about that little, that little, uh, interaction with Rich years ago, but but more than that, just the opportunity to be associated with the publication, and um, and well, I just I'm very thankful. What a what a blessing. Well, thank you. I've um, my whole attitude is I try to stay humble, and hmm. what we try to do 
I mean, this is really, <clears throat> I feel this in my heart, this is a service that we do to the stone industry. And um, realize that we have a lot of effect and it's a great responsibility at times of, of what we publish. And I, I try not to think about that every month, but it is, <laughs> it is a great responsibility. And yeah. I'm, I'm so thankful for our contributors like you over the years that have done tremendous things for the, the industry. And I don't know if this will be backwards or not. We talked about, see that. Yeah, I can see it. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'd still like to do, and I'd still like to get more into that. Mm. And people don't realize that uh, what you published. Mm. And uh, I don't know if you're trying to forget about it or not. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know what I'm doing. Honestly, I'm still trying to figure that out. But I, um, but I, well, think, I think it's very important for the industry, less chaos, more cash. Yeah, but I think in, in hearing what you said in terms of the, the service aspect of it, which is probably something else that's, you know, that's, that's just good for the industry to hear when you consider the, the amount of work that goes into to maintaining and growing and evolving, which you've obviously had to do for the publication, but to understand and hear the underlying motivation behind it, you know, is to, is to benefit the industry. And it's, you know, maybe even more specifically to benefit the, the men and, and the, the women that are doing the work, of, you know, that, that basically makes this industry what it is. And so I think in that respect, we're, we, we have similar motivations um, so I'm curious to get your thoughts on this. You, a while ago, you were talking about, you, you've mentioned Doug, the founder, but who had sold the company and Slippery Rock back in 06. So what is that? 15, 16, you know, 15, 16 years. That's a long time. And yet his, his impact is, is, appears to still be felt in, yes. in terms of how you, what, tell me what, how was he able to do that to where 15 years later, you are still conscious of his original motivation and values that, that seems to at least play some role in guiding, you know, how you continue the, the, the legacy of the publication. Well, <clears throat> one day he told me as far as considering content of what was going in, don't publish anything that your grandmother would be ashamed to read. <laughs> so <laughs> that, might, that might mean that um, they're the racier things that we could print or the jokes that we could do. And I just stay away from it. Mm -hmm. I try to do what's good, what's right, not you know, greatly adversely negative. Um, and that's been kind of our guideline for, for, for all these years. Um, in that way, yes, he's had a profound effect. I would like to say also that uh, Rich Hassert, who had profound views about things, had a profound effect on our editorial stance. Um, he was a big supporter, um, and I'm very thankful of that, on our training and safety mm. and getting it out there and encouraging me to pursue um content and writers that could help us with that mm. and i'm still kind of on that trajectory mm. to this day um it's something that uh, i i too feel is very very important uh, and i'll continue to push that you know as long as i'm editor mm. um, So how, how is that, you know, when you talk about the training, how, how specifically do you approach that? Like we were talking about kind of the storyboard or you're looking down, you know, sometimes a year in advance, sort of the overview, but then you're looking two, three months down the road. What, you know, kind of how, how are you approaching that training aspect of it just from that purposeful strategic, you know, standpoint and how does that end up playing out in the actual you know, conversations with the writers and, and then what's ultimately printed, you know, every month. Right now, a lot of what we've been focusing on as far as training is um, business and business optimization topics. Uh, 
just about every issue we have some or our two my two main writers on that um, have some ongoing series on how to streamline the business how to make it more profitable um, I have a new writer that has just come on board and uh, he has started a series as well of how to digitally market your mm. business so those are things that maybe not be aimed at the you know uh, polisher in the shop or the, the installer but a lot of these guys run their own businesses and they do that part of it too yeah and that's what we're thinking of ways that not only can they make it safer but ways they can make it more profitable mm-hmm. and the more profit that you're making the more money you can put back into safety mm-hmm. um, yeah well and that's you know incredibly important because the way the industry has evolved at the fabrication shop level in the last 25 years, I, I'm, I'm recalling a, I remember reading an article by Joe Conrad. I don't know if you, if you remember this article this years ago, but he's a well-known, widely regarded Portland, like old school, you know, fabricator. His son, Charlie now runs that shop. And, and I remember, I remember an article that he wrote and he, there was one line he said back in the, I don't know if it was the eighties or nineties, we could fabricate a kitchen twice and still make money because, you know, <laughs> it was so new and it was so expensive. That is not the case today. Um, the, the need for the, the margins just not in that for the craftsmen to, to simply predictably and inevitably make money fabricating it is it's a different market and the pressures that are on the business are are, in my opinion more important now than the technical side of the actual how do you cut it how do you polish it how do you install it the 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 ability to survive and and to run a business that can be sustainable uh you know the need for that is I, i think is increases by the day um, and so I, you know, that, that, that training is so important. Who, you, you had mentioned a couple of the mainstay artic- or, uh, authors. Who, who are you referring to? Um, Ed Young, Ed Hill, mm. who, uh, Synchronous Solutions. Uh, Ed Young has his own business to where he goes in and trains in the shop. Mm-hmm. go in and um, my newest writer, excuse me, I'm flipping through triple edition. Ooh, the, we get an advanced look at the, uh, the issue as of yet. Uh, yes. <laughs> as of yet shipped. I doubt you can read it on the screen, but uh, <laughs> gentleman by the name of Stephen Alberts, who has a company called Countertop Marketing. And basically, that's what he does. He advises and trains through his website, and it's no distance learning, um, how people can optimize their business to make use of what's out there as far as online marketing. Now, a lot of people, a lot of shops that I've talked to over the years have always been word of mouth. Um, now, we do it by our reputation, and that's great. I mean, uh, I'm not saying that you can't do that. But these days, the competition is so fierce. And so what he's writing for us in April is about Google reviews. And the title of this is, you'll see it as it comes out, Google reviews or a fabricator's online word of mouth reputation. Mm. You know, you can, your shop can live or die by a bad Google review. <laughs> Boy, no kidding. And, uh, a lot of the guys, the younger shop owners these days are, are realizing the, the value that they have of both their professional reputation and their online reputation. So mm-hmm. it goes a long way. Yeah, that's, that, that is, I mean, just the, the, the extraordinary value. And I know Ed Young, I, I know of Ed Hill. We've emailed back and forth a few times. And, and Ed actually guest, guest hosted a, uh, uh, <laughs> on the Fab Lab podcast in the past and did a fabulous job. In fact, his lat that, that episode, um, I'll just say, gave gave my best my best episodes a run for their money in terms of downloads. So I may need to just have him do the podcast. But um, 
I just want to make a point here to the audience, the caliber of the content in the Slippery Rock Gazette is, is absolutely top level. And, and the range of um, topics that are being explained and, and put into terms that the, you know, in some cases written by fabricators, just the, I, I just want to make that point that, that, it's not just an article here and there, it's multiple articles per issue are, are extremely relevant content for those who want to maintain a successful business. And it just, um, yeah, just to hear you talk about, there's just a range of topics and the professions and the expertise that, that you, you've been able to attract to the publication is just really remarkable. Thank you, thank you. I think my graphic designer Rebecca is trying to get my attention <laughs> well, hey, I wanted to introduce him since he's the only other person really here in the office with me, um, besides the Gina Cavell, who does a lot of our, our ad sales, which I'm, I'm very grateful to have. It used to be the time when we were doing all of that. Wow. Wow. <laughs> so uh. we've got a pretty small staff, but when I think about all the writers and contributors, we're huge. Yeah. You never know that. When you, when you look at the scope of the publication, I'm I'm even surprised hearing you say that. You know, I, I'm imagining in my mind a a a bigger staff to produce what you guys produce every month, month for 25 years without a without a missed issue. Um, so, with that being said, you've probably got stuff to get to, and I've I've uh, thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. But I wanted to give you an opportunity. You just what would you say you're most proud of? you know, as it relates to your time and your contribution to the Slippery Rock, what do you, um, well, um, that's a difficult question. I would say that if we've made a difference in anybody's hmm. business, help them to succeed, help them to stay safe. Hmm. Um, I would consider that, uh, my a fulfilling career mm -hmm. over the past couple of decades if we've been able to do that and not just to entertain but also to to educate and help preserve a few lives i think that we probably sold a, a few no lift carts for you which i think you have probably saved a few lives right there <laughs> <laughs> at least a few careers for sure <laughs> oh well from one former fabricators perspective i and i know you get the cards and the letters and the emails from readers who are who will say the same thing i i can absolutely attest to the fact that you have accomplished that in spades and so i think that'd be a, just a great place for us to wrap up here is just thanking you larry for your contribution to the industry and you know the unsung hero that you are for maintaining and you've three administrations if you will you have been at the helm of the slippery rock gazette and uh, what a testament to your commitment and and um your care for the industries and the guys out in the shop so thank you for that and uh and thank you for coming on to the fab lab podcast i am i am so tickled and, and i'm so glad that we finally had this opportunity to have this conversation so thank you larry and thank you i hope maybe at some point in the future you want to talk more about the history of what we put into the industry, then I'll be happy to do that. Yeah. Well, and if you ever need, you mentioned uh, Puerto Rico and Bermuda. If you ever need a writer to go on site, um, <laughs> you could put me down as being interested in that assignment. <laughs> All right. Yeah, I certainly will. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Larry, thank you so much for coming on the Fab Lab podcast. I look forward to our next conversation. All right. Thank you. Thank you very much, Aaron. Bye-bye. Bye. Wow. You know, one of the things about doing the Fab Lab podcast that is so fun and it makes it such a privilege and such an honor, it is the opportunities that I have to interview and talk to people, unique individuals. There are so many great people in this industry, and I consider it such a privilege to be able to have conversations like this and share them with the industry so that the industry can continue to advance, evolve, grow, and improve. And so, fellow fabricator, I am so glad that you listened to this interview. 
I hope that you will pay more attention to the great content, the great articles, the great writers, the great authors that are putting out such fantastic information for those of us in the stone industry. And I hope that you benefited from this conversation. So ladies and gentlemen, I hope that you benefit from the Fab Lab podcast. Make sure that you tune in next week because we're going to start another little series talking about management and ownership of a fabrication company. It's a unique angle on a theory, on a topic, on a philosophy that I've talked a lot about here on the Fab Lab podcast, but it has huge, huge significance and relevance to you today as it relates to running your stone shop. So I hope you'll tune in. In the meantime, make sure you check out AaronCrowley.com. You can download the first three chapters of my book, Less Chaos, More Cash, for free. You can also reach out to me if you've got a question, you want to connect, go to AaronCrowley.com, send me a note. I look forward to connecting with you. So until the next episode of the Fab Lab Podcast, happy fabricating.